0: okay so now you know the recording has started uh, please but please you know i just recorded and i share it with uh a few people but please um feel free to comment and talk on it okay um i want to this week's parsha as we know contains the famous episode of the spies and we've gone through it it's a section of the torah that really you can learn and learn and learn and never really get to the bottom of, especially, you know, when you compare it to how the story is talked about in Devarim, when Moshe talks about, I believe it's in Parshas Devarim or maybe in Veskana, and my brain is blanking. I think, I think Devarim, actually. But, and there's a, there's a very strong difference in the narrative. And last year, when we talked about this Parsha, we actually compared the two narratives. Now, I don't want to focus on that. I actually would like to come to the Meraglim through a back door. And by and, and what I mean is I would like for us to go to the end of the Parsha. That's not talking about the Meraglim and to read two small sections. So if you don't mind turning to chapter 15, um, verse 32. Chapter 15, verse 32. Man gathering sticks. Exactly, yeah. So uh, Herman, would you mind reading for us the first episode of the man gathering sticks on Shabbos? While the Israelites were in the desert, they discovered a man gathering sticks on the Shabbat. The ones who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses, Aaron, and the entire community. Since it was not specified what must be done to him,
1: they placed him under guard. God said to Moses, that man
0: must die. That the entire community pelt him with stones outside the camp. The entire community took him outside the camp and they pelted him to death
1: with stones. It was done as God had commanded Moses.
0: Okay, so let's pause here for a second. So the story goes, we have this man who's violating Shabbos, he's desecrating Shabbos. Moshe knows, because we've seen earlier, right? Mechalaleha mos yumas. It is known already that the death penalty, sorry, that the that desecrating the Shabbos uh, gets one, the death penalty. The question that Moshe has over here is what is the death penalty? Meaning there are many creative ways to kill somebody in Judaism, four to be exact. Which one does this person get? Moshe goes to Hashem, Hashem tells him, you stone him, they stone him, and they kill him. This is one of the episodes in the Torah where there is a very interesting shift in how a law is taught, right? If you consider all the other violations in the Torah, right, all the other ones, there are clear and explicit or through derivation, direct instructions what type of penalty each have is supposed to get, right? When one eats non-kosher, there are derivations about malkos. When one murders, there are derivations about how they're supposed to die when one commits adultery, all, all the penalties are listed and, and they're clear. Why specifically for Shabbos was this not made clear? Why for Shabbos did there have to be some sort of precipitating event, right? This aids him, in order for them to clarify the law. This story fits into the pattern, fits into the uh kind of collection of three such events that happened in the Torah. The first is Pesach Sheini that we had last week, the second is the story of the Makoshesh. and the third are going to be the story of the Benos Tzolavchad or the daughters of Tzolavchad. In each case there is a law that's taught in the Torah only because there were Jewish people who came and asked the question and the law was taught. And the question is, in each case, why was this law not taught earlier or not taught directly? Why did, in all these cases, does it require some sort of event, right? The Jews have to ask, why is that? There's a Gemara in Masechet Smachos, which is one of the, it's, it's, it's not really part of Talmud. It's one of the uh, Mesechtos Ch'tanos they're called. Uh, and the there's a very, very interesting text over there. The Gemara says, let me just pull it up. I, I, I have the text here in front of me. Um, okay. The low ode, So the halacha is, the Gemara says, is that Hashem allows for good things to happen. and So this is a, 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 uh, a statement from Rabbi Akiva. And he said, good things are brought about through good people and bad things are brought about through bad people. And the Gemara over here brings a whole list of examples of this. And that includes Moshe and Aaron, redeeming the Jews from from Egypt, even had had there not been a Moshe and Aaron, the Jews would have still been redeemed, but it would have gone through somebody else. Uh, They include the Jews being enslaved by Egypt, that there was a prophecy that the Jews will be enslaved. It wasn't predestined that that it had to be done specifically by the Egyptians, but because they were evil, it was uh, that God cause that, you know, evil came about through evil people, this way evil people will get punished for their general evil. And the Gemara over here lists a bunch of examples, and amongst the examples it lists these three stories. The story of the Pesach Shani, the story of uh, the daughters of Tzlafchad, and the story of the Mekoshesh Eitzim, and it also includes the story of the person who, who uh, cursed God. And the question over here is, is that, yes, there is this notion of or Right, that there is this notion that God, for some reason, wants it to happen through a person's agency, and then chooses a worthy agent of this, be they good, be they bad. But it doesn't really explain the bigger question of why specifically these? There are many other mitzvot in the Torah. There are many other Avera's in the Torah. Why specifically these three were done in this form? The other question over here is, is that there's a very famous Gemara in Shabbos. The Gemara in Shabbos is very strange. The Gemara brings from Rabbi Akiva, who is also the same person as the person who said this, this thing about the Megadl and Aidei And Rabbi Akiva said, who was the Mikoshesh Eitzim? The Mekoshesh Eitzim was the father of the daughters of Tzlavchan, meaning Tzlavchan. <laughs> um, so the so the was actually Tzlavchan. And when he said this, Rabbi Rabbi Akiva was was uh, he was he was criticized for this. And I think it was Rabbi Yirmiyah asked. He said what right do you have to disclose who this person was? If you're correct, and it was Slavchad, then, then the Torah hid hid his name, it didn't disclose it, and you revealed it. And if it wasn't Slavchad, then you just maligned a perfectly innocent man. So the Gemara responds that, what do you mean? Rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, if you look at the text, Rabbi Akiva doesn't just come up to this from 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 nowhere, right? The Gemara says, "Tana Rabanan Mekayish The person who uh, was gathering the wood was was Slavchan. How do we know this? B'chein Hu Omer Vayihiu Yisrael, BaMidbar. They were in the desert. Vayimseu Ish and they found a man Ulehalan. And later, who Omer. It says, and this is when the daughters of Slavchan are talking to Moshe Avinu meis BaMidbar. Our father died in the desert. The same way when you're talking about, and they're referencing this death in the desert, it was talking about Slavchad. So Rabbi Akiva seems to have a He seems to have a derivation based on the similarity, on the use of the same word, desert, desert, in both cases. And he seems to draw a relationship between these two events. Now, this is a very, very standard approach, right? So, why then is he criticized? So, the Ben Miser tells him, Akiva, you know, whether you're correct or incorrect, you are destined to have to accept judgment for this, right? If you're correct, the Torah is hiding him and you are revealing him in love and if not if you're incorrect like you are um kind of maligning this righteous person the like mar asks well what do you mean he I, the Torah never hid it the Allah Shava Right? That Rabbi Akiva had a He had the same words Which means that it wasn't hidden by the Torah It was just embedded in a different way And this is what the Torah does all the time So the Torah wasn't hiding it It was just in, uh, encoding it So the Gemara says So Rabbi Yehudah ben Becerah believed that He did not have A Shava Meaning that Rabbi Yehudah ben Becerra Did not agree that, um, that Rabbi Akiva had Aixera Shava. So where does he? So where does he derive it from? So whatever. So so sorry. So, so then the brings and Rebu and and ben has a different approach as to uh, as to as to who was Selaftchad, and he says the case was that that was one of the people who ascended the mountain to battle the people of Amalek earlier in the parsha after Moshe told them not to go. Moshe said, "Don't go up," and they and they and they went up, and that. Now, what's interesting is that Rabbi ben Beseira, who's so concerned about Tzlavchad's reputation, is then ascribing him a different sin, right? Because Moshe told them not to go. Hashem told them not to go, right? Don't go to war. I'm not going to be with you, and yet they went anyway. So yes, it wasn't. Maybe at the level of transgressing Shabbos, but Rabbi ben is agreeing that the father that 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 Slavka did something wrong, and what he did wrong was he attacked, was he went to go attack the 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 people of Amalek, which was an avera because it went counter to what Moshe told them to do. So in effect, he's doing the same thing uh, Rabbi Akiva did, and he does not have a zera Shavah for it. Interesting, kind of on the side. Tosfes asks over here, he says, Tosfes says, I don't understand. Like, Rabbi Akiva had a Gzei Shava, so why didn't Rabbi Ben Beseira just accept it? So Tais has a very interesting thing, which is a very important kind of point when thinking about Gzei Shavas. says that there, was an, that there was a tradition, that there was a certain number number of Gzei Shavas in the Torah. And this tradition was accepted by everybody. And uh, there was some discrete number, some, right, I don't know, like, like, let's say a hundred. Rabbi Yehuda ben Becerra had a hundred Shavas that were passed down to him from his teacher. Rabbi, this one that he, that he heard from Rabbi Akiva wasn't one of them. And therefore, since it would have made 101, it wasn't valid. Rabbi Akiva obviously disagreed with one of the Shavas that, that, that Rabbi Yehuda ben Becerra had, and therefore he had this one instead. And that's why, but you learn Talmud and you kind of, it very often, this very often happens at the beginning of a chapter when the Talmud is discussing where the laws of the Mishnah are derived from, the Talmud will go for like three pages discussing different Shavas poking holes in them <laughs> and if you kind of go through Talmud long enough, which I have not, you're actually able to really pull out that it's this very interesting um, set of rules and uh, conventions about what constitutes valid, invalid, if the word is extra, <laughs> if the word is extra in both places or not extra in both places, and there's all sorts of very, very interesting rules about I, when and how Xeroshav works. Yeah, sorry, Paul. I
1: don't know what the term Xeroshav is.
0: Oh, sorry, I apologize. So, so Xeroshav is, we have very often, you'll have, let's say, a word in one place and the same word in a different place, right? So let's say it says Shar you no know, ox when it talks about the laws of Shabbos, and then it says the word shar somewhere else. I don't know. Let's say by the laws of damages. I some reason I have in my head that there's some connection there. And then the Talmud will use the fact that the same word is used in both places to derive some sort of law from one place to another. Now, what's the, what's the, what's the literal translation? Does it mean like a parallel, like drawing a parallel? Maybe? Yeah, yeah. So, 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 Gazer Shabbos means. Like there's a decreed similarity because you have the same word in both places. Now, but this is not... Yeah, I'm sorry, Laura, question? No, no, no I'm you, just trying to understand the Hebrew word. Equal. Shava meaning... Oh, gizera, like 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 Gezeira Shava. If then, you look, if you look, if you want to see it translated, if you look before P'suka um, de Zimra by the weekday Shacharis, you'll see over there, there, there's a section of... Rabbi Yishmael Omer, but Shlosh Esret Midos HaTorah Midrashash Baham. Poor Orly uh, and the kids had to suffer through me going through all of them with them at some point and um, forcing them to translate and bring examples of them. But so he brings that there are 13 methods of derivation, how things are derived. If you look, uh, I, I don't have the sitter in front of me, but if you look, it should be, uh, pretty close to, so if you like right before Psuka de Zimra, if you look in the table of contents, does it have Rebbe Yishmael, the 13 attributes?
1: He's looking for it now.
0: So like before Mismar Shir Hanukkah Sabayas, so uh-huh. like, if you go right before, do you go a couple of passages before? Yeah,
1: I got it, I got
0: it. Right, so if you look over there, you'll see, they, they probably, how do they translate it, Zereshava? Uh,
1: what am I looking to the translation? Rabbi Yishmael Omer, with Shloshesrei midot haTorah, nidreshit behem, right? Mikal um, b'chomer o mikzera. got it. Shava through Nicole. tradition that similar words
0: in different contexts are meant to clarify one another. Okay, right. So, so there's this idea. So, so now this is what I kind of call when I when I was talking to the kids about it, a non-logical derivation. Now. By non-logical, I don't mean illogical. Non-logical, I mean, for example, a, a kal v'chomer is a logical derivation, right? A kal v'chomer means that if you have one area that's more stringent in general and one area that's more lenient, right? So, right, let's say you have Shabbos and Yom Tif, right? So Yom Tif we know is more lenient than Shabbos. The penalties for desecrating the Shabbos is death and for a festival, it's less. It's just a, 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 a law. And if you find the leniency in Shabbos, you could assume that Yom will have the same leniency, right? Because that's the principle of Kal v'chomek, right? If Shabbos, which is much more stringent, has a leniency, for sure Yom will also have it. So that's a, what I would call a logical derivation. Shava is a traditional derivation. It means that there was a tradition, and Taisvah says, that even though there was ambiguity as the generations went on, exactly which words are significant, they still preserved a strong sense of what number, how many of them there were. And therefore there was disagreement between the rabbis, which derivations were valid, different rabbis had different traditions. And there was, and, and there was also a certain um, kind of hermeneutical set of rules about how they should be used, meaning they had a sense, it wasn't because these two things are related on a logical level or there's kind of, some kind of clear correlation, but no, there was like certain hermeneutical rules. Like, so for example, if let's say um, a word is extra in one place and extra and then the same word is extra in another place, it's, it's easier to make derivations. But if they're not extra or could the same word be used twice or there are different ways of poking holes in these things. And if you go through in many different sections of Talmud, you'll see that there's this fascinating set of rules and this really interesting structure that they had and that was developed to help establish or to argue for the validity of different traditions. But they all started with a tradition. I mean, there may have been two traditions and then kind of this sense and their rules and their understanding of how these things work and help them decide between which one should they go with so it's a it's a it's a it's a very interesting a very interesting thing okay but that takes us off our main point um so so the so the question over here is so rabbi akiva accuses slav of being the mikoshish Eitzim, he's criticized what's interesting is that in medrash it brings this opinion that Salafat is Makoshish Eitzim, but doesn't bring it from Rabbi Akiva. And all the Medra says is, is that saying this is wrong because the Torah hid it, and who are we to disclose it? The problem is, is that this is a very interesting sensitivity because we've been disclosing people's sins, right, in the Torah going back to Adam, right? We've been talking about all the Averos that Adam did. The Averos that Noach did, the Averos that Avram did, and Sarah, right? She laughing, she didn't have this. Avram didn't have enough faith. We say negative things about people in the Torah all the time, right? I remember when I was a kid, I asked my, my rabbi, I said, I don't understand. The Torah literally does not care about Lashon Hara, <laughs> I'm saying, right? It's, it, says, it says a whole bunch, and, and Orly actually pointed this out to me recently. She was, she was asking me, she said, the only place where we care about anonymity in the Torah at all is in Rus, where the person who rejected Rus, their name is not listed, right? They're called Ploni Almoni. And even though some say the person's real name was Tov, and there's an illusion if you read the text and kind of sounds like maybe like that. But but in reality, we don't know who that person was. And Orly was asking, I think, a very strong question. She's like, and all of a sudden we care. <laughs> so 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 I answered her. And so at that time I said, because the person over there who rejected the Rus didn't do anything wrong, right? The derivation, the basic understanding was that Moavi that that the Torah said you cannot marry somebody from Moab. Boaz had this interesting insight, Moaviv lo Moavis, right? He had this derivation, but this kind of interesting thing, but this guy was like, I'm not rolling rolling the dice on an explicit prohibition in the Torah. So therefore, he didn't do anything wrong and we don't know him in any other context. So therefore, there would have been nothing to learn from what he did, right? He behaved correctly. In fact, as we said, we were talking about Rus, right? It's Rus who dies the next morning. Sorry, it's Boaz who dies the next morning. Right. So that's why we don't mention him. But the Makoshish ate him over here, right? We talk about Dasam and Aviram, we talk about Korach, we talk about, you know, all the other Jewish bad actors in the Torah. Why is the Makoshish's reputation so sacred that we can't even dis- we can't even disclose who who he is? Okay, so the, so now let's go. So we have all these questions in our head. The Makoshish is a very difficult section. I want to just point out one more question because life was too good until now. If you look at the very first word in the in entire, that's my first word, I'm sorry. The first verse in, in, in verse 32, it says, yisrael They were in the desert and they found somebody in Mechoshesh So a lot of the commentaries ask over here, why do you have to set the scene for me? I know that they were in the desert. In fact, we were just informed that they will spend the next 40 years there. Why is it important for us to mention that he was Makoshish Aetzim in the desert? I remember one time I said a joke that this guy was not simply a sinner, he was a very dedicated sinner because he managed to find a whole bunch of pieces of wood in the desert. Um, (laughs) Okay, you know, uh, um, uh, all jokes aside, right? Why, who, who is he? Sorry, why, why do we have to mention he's in the desert? Okay. Fine. I want to hold off on answering all of these until we read the next section. Paul, do you mind reading for us um, from verse 37 until the end of the parasha? Sorry.
1: Uh, Hashem said to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, that they shall make themselves tzitzis on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. And they shall place upon the tzitzis of each corner a thread of turquoise wool. It shall constitute tzitzis for you, that you may see it and and remember all the commandments of Hashem and perform them, and not explore after your heart and after your eyes, after which you stray. So that you may remember and perform all my commandments and be holy to your God, I am Hashem, your God, who has removed you from the land of Egypt to be a god unto you. I am Hashem, your God.
0: Okay, and that's the end of the parsha, right? So the Parsha ends off with the section that we say in Shema at the end, which is the mitzvah of tzitzes. The Nitzim the over here points out, he wants to know, he says, if you look at the at the at the at the very end, it says um, two times the notion of zechira, uh, remembrance. If you look at verse 39, it says, And you will see them. You will uh, remember all the mitzvot. And then as Paul read, right, you're not going to stray after your heart and and you're going to live a righteous life in this world. Then in verse 40, it brings another Right, In order for you to remember and you will do all my mitzvot, Right, and you will, and you will, and you will, and you will be, and you will be um, uh, holy to your God. So it seems over here very redundant, right? Because the first one, right, the first chira talks about the Right, this talks about us chasing after our lusts, and then the second one talks about doing all the mitzvot and being holy to God. So you would think that. The second, that, the, that verse 39, is really subsumed, right? It should, right, should really be included in verse 40, right? Clearly, in doing all the mitzvot and being holy to God, that includes moral, you know, moral law, you know, uh, ritual law, all the different mitzvot includes everything, right? Kedoshim Tiyu, being holy, as we spoke about, right? So what, why, what is the, what is verse 39 teaching us that we don't already have in verse 40 right is the question clear okay. Yeah fine so 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 that's, so that, that's the first question of the second question is if you look over here right if you look at verse 38 so in, in 38 the Torah talks about how tzitzis are made right? on the corners of the garments. And you should put a core of blue. Right? Blue. Now there's clear, and a, there's a derivation that white strings, the white fringes, they're obligatory. Right? We're supposed to have white strings on our touches. Blue, when we have it, we should put it on. When we don't have it, it's not ma'akev, meaning it doesn't. Prevent us from wearing tsits. And the question is why? They're both biblically mandated, blue and white, right? Kaholovan, right? Right. They're both, right? They're both biblically mandated. They're both biblically mandated. Why is it, why do we either we have the mitzvah or we don't have the mitzvah? Right? We don't have to have four cornered garments, right? We could just once we lose tela. We're gonna to have to round all of our all of our corners, round all of our garments, right? Why why isn't it? Why do we have? Why is there this distinction between blue and white?
1: Sorry, how are you getting to that?
0: Oh no! So so this distinction.
1: Round not- the corners and and we don't have blue and I mean I know there isn't
0: blue anymore, but. Well, I mean, that's a controversy. <laughs> but, okay. Yeah, I know that. I there, there, there wasn't blue for a very long time. So the way, so 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 the place where I'm getting it from, the commentaries over here say that they so they derive it from 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 different places. I forget exactly the various sources, but the Gemara Menachas mentions it uh, among others that that is not that blue is not ma'akiv. It's not it's not explicit in the verse. This is the halakha, it's 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 uh, derived from here. How's not explicit? No, no, no. So that's what I'm asking. I'm saying the obligation to have is explicit. The fact that does not fact that if you don't have trialis around, you can still have the mitzvah of tzits. That's not explicit. Okay, got it. Thank yeah, you. yeah. Sorry. So so the so the, the question is, and and I'm and, and and that's really right my question is that trias is explicit. And it's it's a doraisa, right? So then, if we don't have trelas, then we don't have tzitzis. <coughs> we don't have tzitzis. So if we don't have trelas and we don't have tzitzis, right? So then, so the tzitzis, if you don't have trelas, then we should not have tzitzis. How could you live in a world with no tzitzis? It's very easy. You you just don't wear four cornered karmat, right? That's it. That's it, right? Um, so it's not a difficult task. So. Why do we then? Why, why is there this notion of white and 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 white kind of we're still going to wear, but and and blue if we have a good, if not not. The the third question over here is, is that we know it's that one of the primary sources for the principle of what's called asay dochalos asay, that a positive commandment allows you to violate a negative commandment comes from the mitzvah of tzitzis because there's an obligation to put these strings on a four-corner garment, especially the blue string, has to be made out of wool, and you even put it on a linen garment. So you can mix wool and linen for the sake of the mitzvah. And the question is, is that why does the Torah emphasize, and why is there such a priority over here by tzitzas that tzitzas be the source or one of the main sources of right? of this notion that positive commandments negate negative commandments. There's a fascinating Hemek Shayla over here. So, Hemek Shayla is not directly on this. He is, it's really, it's, this is a work from Rev uh, Naftali, from, from Reb Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, who wrote the Nativ and Hemek Davar. Hemek Shayla is his commentary on one of the works of the early Geonim. And he brings over there from the Ramban a fascinating idea. He says the Ramban writes over there, it's, it's a, the Ramban has an essay about divine providence. And he brings over there that, that the Ramban writes that there are two approaches how God deals with the world. The first approach, he says, is that if you have a person who loves God, is connected to God, but ultimately lives their life within the bounds of this world, he, this person remains within their nature, and we're gonna kind of expand on a little bit what this means later. The Ramban writes, and if so, God will direct them, but they will remain fixed, between, fixed, and set within the laws of nature. And one of the one of the examples that the Ramban brings is that if this person wanders into a dangerous neighborhood, he can't say, "But I am innocent, and God will protect me." No, they will be mugged. And possibly shot, right? Why? Because this person is still living within the context of nature. They have planted themselves in the real world. God will, you know, but this notion of this divine providence is still tempered, is still modulated by natural law. That is the kind of first order person. That's a regular person. I don't know about you, but that's probably me, right? Somebody who kind of lives and, and kind of is too clutch, cl- 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 you know, clutches too dearly to the notion of real life, of, of kind of, of what's normal. Then the Ramban describes a second type of person that there is this notion of this ubermensch, to quote somebody wholly inappropriate, right? Um, <laughs> right <laughs> where, where, where this person is able through their connection and faith and spiritual growth to transcend nature, to live on a higher spiritual plane, to be so close to God, especially through the act of love of God, that the laws and the regular conventions of nature no longer hold true to them, for them, I'm sorry. And the Hamakshela explains, he says, "These these were the two paradigms, and we mentioned this in the past, of how the Jews lived in the desert, and it's interesting is that in his work Hamigdaver, this he, he writes about this in his introduction to the book of Bamidbar that this was exactly the paradigm. This was exactly kind of the two approaches that the Jews had in the desert, as I've mentioned in the past, right? That where do the Jews break from the paradigm, from the from the schema of? Being supernatural above nature, they break it when they go in the desert. And they go. It says they went to the midbar. If you remember, we talked about the uh, Masoninim last week. It prefaces by you, right, right, by ba midbar. They went into the desert, mm-hmm. and we talked about that. That it was at that point that the Jews chose. I'm sorry, I didn't talk about it here. I think I, th- I spoke about it in Chicago. Um, that the Jews chose normal life. Um, they did not want to live on this higher plane, and that's where and that's where everything went downhill. The other place where they choose it are, is the episode of the spies, right? And we've mentioned this. If you look at the episode of the spies, it's a very strange story, right? The Jews come to Moshe and they say, Let us send spies. I'm gonna use the narrative in, in in Dvarim because it's more explicit a little bit, right? So they go and they say we and they say we, we, we want to spend, send spies now sending military spies to go look at terrain to figure out how to attack it is a very normal thing to do the Jews don't do that if you look at who they sent they sent their 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 leaders right now I don't know how it worked in the Jewish culture in the desert but political leaders tend, tend not to be the ones that go to the front lines right It's the poor people who they sent to the front lines and they tend to stay in Washington right so why is it that all of a sudden we have these noble heroic, Jewish leaders who are signing up for an incredibly dangerous espionage mission behind enemy lines to go investigate the land of Israel. And if you look over there, Moshe does not give them military instructions. If you look at the beginning of Parshas Shlach, just, you know I mean, we're just short on time, so we can't look at the verses. At the at the verses, sorry, it says, Hatova hi imra'ah, Go look if it's good or bad, right? That's not a military objective, right? Hamif Tsarim, go see if they're fortified or not fortified, that's a military mission, right? The land is good or bad is like going to check out real estate. And we've mentioned right that the Jews, when they come to the land of Israel, they make the choice that we want to live normal life. And therefore, we want to investigate the land of Israel. Does this, is this land suitable for normal life? And therefore, Moshe is hoping that these people will be able to you know be the influencers of the day and they'll be able to influence the Jews to like the land of Israel. But the whole episode of the spies is they're descending from this level of complete and total faith faith in God and the supernatural existence to trying to decide about whether or not the land of Israel is suitable for them in a material way or not. And that is kind of one of the big paradigm shifts that happens you know, from when they leave Sinai and then what ultimately dooms them to 40 years in the desert. The Hemek Dava writes, sorry, sorry, in Hemek Shele, he writes, this, these two f- f- phases, these two approaches to life are embodied by the tzitzis. The blue, right, as is brought in the Mishnah and Brukho, <laughs> other places, is a kind of, is a, is a uh, analogy to heaven. The blue uh, reminds us of the sea, which reminds us of the sky, which reminds us of the Kisiyaka. The blue strings represent the higher form of existence, the existence of love, the existence where a person is so in love with God and so dedicated to God that they're able to transcend real life and therefore they are no longer bound by nature. It's a higher level of existence. That is the blue. That is not within the grasp of everybody. That is something of when you have that and you're able to experience it, hold on to it. When t'cheles is available, do it. It's a mitzvah. It's an obligation. But ultimately, for most of Jewish history and for most of us, we end up living in the real world. We don't have the luxury. We don't have the privilege of t'cheles. We don't have the privilege of that grasp. And the Ramban writes, he says, even those people that have kind of could experience this closeness with God, very often it's transitory. And they have it for a moment, they have it for a time, and they lose it, then they have to climb back up. And it's a journey that they spend their entire lives uh, traveling on, trying to recapture and climb back up to that level of closeness and relationship with God where they're able to transcend reality. That is Thelas. Lavan is normal life. And the HaMegdavah writes says these two approaches are embodied in the two zechirot that we mentioned. The first is, this, is the uh, zechira of the regular person who lives a regular life. We have to deal, our first order thing, are not being able to remember and deal with all the different mitzvot and ascend levels of holiness and spirituality. For most of us, our daily struggle is simply below sasruach re'levachem nechem. Right, We have a difficult time and our challenge, our struggle in the world is just dealing with real life, dealing with our temptations, dealing with our struggles, remembering the mitzvahs, trying to accomplish what we can. But there is a higher level person, or even for us, there could be a higher level mode of existence. That's the second one. Vasi semes kol mitzvah sa'i kidoshim there's a level of kiddushah, there's a level of sanctity and holiness that is really only there for those who are on the level of t'cheles on the higher level. Let's go back to the mikoshi. oh sorry, the one final thing. Why is this the source, the Tchelas, the source of I say Aseid? The Ramban and Parshish Yisro writes, he says, why do positive commandments negate negative commandments? He says, because love over fear, right? Sounds like a hippie slogan, but the the, the the Ramban writes it over there. He says, because that, he says, positive mitzvot are actions that are done out of love. They're positive commandments. And losase is a fear-based thing, right? It's, I don't want to transgress. So he says love has this love, which is a closer connection to God than fear, is stronger. And chelas, which embodies the, 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 the relationship of love, right, is the perfect place to point out this this distinction between asei and Los assay.
1: But uh, it does, I mean, when it introduces T'chelet, it does say that the uh, so yeah, met kol mitzvot Adonai so it says you have to remember, you have the T'chelet and that's what is is the rationale or the, the origin of remembering all the mitzvot. Right in the same sentence that it says that uh, you will not. Uh, yeah. So, so why is there I don't quite see where the distinction is.
0: Right. So, the distinction is if you look so, so. if you look at the at the second verse, right. So we point out right that the verse after that forty has yeah. a, a a very uh, redundant form. So the way the have devil's understanding is that is that is that you're right, right? That they that in verse 38, right, there are there is right, you make tzis. That is kind of the white strings, right? Then it says, right? And then there is a secondary thing, that on the tzitsis, you put the, the 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 uh the blue fringe. Then the way he's parsing the next two verses is that he says. The first one is referring to the first order tithes. Right? The I'm sorry. I'm gonna for sure mess this up on Shabbos when I read the Tara. right? Then the second verse is referring to the second part of the Nasnual Titus Hakanaf Right? So so that's how we're splitting them. Okay. This is a drash. This is not this is not Psha. Right? this is a drash, but but that's how he's reading the verses. This is how he's reading it into the into the verses. Okay, so back to the Makoshish eitzim. What was the avera of the Makoshish eitzim? The avera of the Makosh eitzim was that they violated Shabbos. Shabbos is meein olam haba. As We mentioned numerous times, right? Shabbos is a glimpse in a living in a different level of existence. The person who transgresses, who violates Shabbos. Is a person that says he's kofer about Kadish Baruch, right? Is a person who denies the notion, denies the reality that there could exist a higher level of existence. And therefore, the Makoshish Aitim is placed, the story is placed in the context of the spies ba midbar. They were in the desert. The desert was the arena, was the place where the Jews were constantly faced with the choice about which. Which, where, where do we want to be? In the Midbar with the Masonanim? they chose law. In the Midbar with the Mikoshesh, he chose law He transgressed Shabbos. It was another act of pushing away and rejecting a higher form of existence. Why is he not mentioned? The reason why the Gemara is saying he's not mentioned is because the Gemara is trying to say, on the if he did something wrong over here, right? So one approach is because he did it to go teach the Jews the importance of this, and therefore it was a sin that was done for like a noble reason. So that's why he wasn't mentioned. But I think there's a deeper idea that the reason why, I should say deeper because that's a medrash. I think that, that that there's another idea over here that the reason why he's not mentioned is because when you mention someone's name in the Torah or where we talk about a name, it becomes, the, the story becomes linked to that person, right? We talk about Abraham's sins or we talk about Adam's sins or Noah's sins because the sins themselves don't teach us anything, right? It is the context of the fact that they were done by Noah that's edified, right? that Noah, who was this great person, he did this sin, and we look at the circumstances and this, this, and we're able to derive and learn a very, very important lesson from that, right? It is the combination of the person and the action, the person and the transgression, that's where the the lesson lies. In the Makoshesh, there is no lesson from who did it. The lesson is simply that in the desert, there was... Another choice point, the point of Shabbos, that could have either been embraced or rejected, and it was rejected. And therefore, it was at that particular moment that Hashem chose to show the severity of that by imposing the harshest possible penalty, is that He wanted Hashem put it in this form where it is through a person's actions that the penalty is taught, because skila, as the Mishnah in Sanhedrin writes, is the harshest of the four death penalties. And therefore, there has to have been an action, there has to have been a choice and a decision, and then a consequence, like we have with the miraglim and the misonanim, to further teach the lesson, lesson that when we're given the choice to live, on a higher or lower plane of existence, and we choose lower, the consequences are devastating. The 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 so that now so Rebihuda ben ben Besera, when he talks about that he went up to go fight, says going up to go fight over there, the Jews were trying to do something good. Yes, they rejected God, but they were choosing God. When they went up on the mountain, it was the opposite story. Hashem said, you guys fell. You're in normal life. You go up against Amalek. You're going up to people on high ground. You're going to be decimated. And these Jews who went up, they said, no, we're going to still sacrifice for God. We're going to go up there and we're going to fight because we want to kind of climb back up. So there's no, yes, they were wrong for not listening, but it wasn't this lesson. It wasn't this kind of devastating sin of choosing normalcy over kind of eternity, right? It was, they they were trying to choose eternity, but the choice was no longer theirs. So there's this very interesting thread. If you read through the Parsha now, and yes, even though the parsha's kind of the structure of a Parsha, meaning where it starts and where it ends, is actually a matter of a lot of, you know, of, a lot of contention that has to do with the cycle of the reading, whatever it is. But if you read through the parsha now on Shabbos, or before then, hopefully, and you read through it, you'll notice how there is this very interesting thread that goes through the whole parsha. The parsha starts off with the story of the spies. So, again, right? Being able to choose holiness, and instead they they kind of choose you know, to live a mundane existence, this kind of lower form of providence of the Ramban. They get punished, they get stuck there for 40 years. Immediately afterwards, what are they taught? They are taught about the laws of the sacrifices. What are the laws of the sacrifices? The laws of the sacrifices, as we said, is elevating the material word, world to God, right? It's this beginning of the of the uh, ascent up, and it talks about the laws of the sacrifices, then it talks about the laws of truma, right? All these different things of being able to kind of sanctify the material world. Then it talks about the Makoshish etzim, they fall again. And then it talks about tzitzis, which is another section that again, kind of encapsulates and talks about both of these ideas. All right, we'll stop here. If anyone has any questions or comments, please share.